0: And also, I think you need to make a very clear distinction between internal and external. And what I mean by that is, you know, the project team, the conversations that you have with your internal team and your internal goals may not align with any of the external, whether it's client or consulting goals. So you need to know what information to share and what information not to share and what angle you're going to play that card. (laughs) So I almost feel like, you know, you're you are playing a game of cards sometimes with the external because you're trying to see like, you know, you want, what are you going to trade me for? You know, if I give you this, are you going to give me more money to do that? (laughs) You know, and I don't mean like money in terms of our fee. I just mean for the design, right? If I, if you VE this out, what can I add back in to add back the value in design? Right. And I think, maybe understanding it's not easy. I don't think that you can fast track it too much to be honest, just because I feel like because it's a human job, it's a communication job, you know, I think the best way is to actually take it slow.
1: Welcome to a best practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm super, super, super excited to be joined by the one and only Flora Bow from Bjark Engels Group. Flora is a licensed architect with 14 years of experience in architectural design and in the development industry as well. We actually share, we were colleagues before at uh, at WeWork, uh, working on some pretty cool project, uh, which we may or may not get into today, but that's where we work together and that's I can't really say any more other than it was such an awesome experience to have her as a project manager on your team. And I'm very excited to be having this conversation with her and to uh, for you all to get to know her more. She's currently the project manager at BIG, as I mentioned. Through that experience, she's helping organize on new projects that the company's working on. And she has a thorough understanding of everything from contract negotiation, scheduling, budgeting, the works. So really excited to be joined by Flora. And my co-host here today is Chris Morgan, as well from the Monograph team. So thank you, Flora, for joining us.
0: Thank you very much for having me on your show. (laughs) This is the first time I'm doing this. So um, yeah, very excited.
1: Yeah, it's going to be fun. So I always like to start off just by understanding a little bit more. I know I kind of talked about a little bit of the high level, but would love the highlight reel maybe of, of your career so far.
0: Sure. I mean, it's uh, pretty simple. I um, I grew up in New York. I went to a high school where drafting was a required class. And uh, through that, actually, my teacher is still around. And you know, now that I moved to New York, I should go see him. So I decided to go into architecture. My whole family has nothing to do with architecture. I realized that a lot of my classmates actually do have some construction or design background. And for me, I definitely, you know, didn't have any of that. But I'm really glad that I kind of found myself in this world and because I really do enjoy the built environment. And uh, so I went to Carnegie Mellon for a Bachelor of Architecture. And then after that, you know, in, in my professors over there, you know, kind of taught us, oh, you know, we should do something really interesting, small scale, but very, you know, poetic, conceptual. And I thought we might do some, you know, library projects or some very interesting housing projects. And instead, I'm also, you know, Chinese. I've always kept, you know, my Chinese culture very much alive. And my parents have, you know, drilled in me that I must learn the language. So, you know, as through my travels back to China, as I was growing up, I realized that China was growing very rapidly in the early 2000s. And I knew that somebody was there to help and it wasn't just all local. So I interviewed with a lot of American firms that had a presence in China, which is why I have worked on mostly China projects for a good part of my career up until we work. And then now I bake. So yeah, in general, I mean, I kind of, I think it was kind of an accident that, uh, you know, the type of projects I work on, but I'm glad that I'm here.
1: Very cool. And I think to, to start, you have a, a bit of a little bit of a presentation to kind of walk us through a little bit, which I think is going to really be a fascinating way to set the context for the rest of the talk.
0: Yeah, I prepared a very few slides just so that, you know, when we talk about project management, I know there's a plethora of different types of firms and different sizes. So all of my answers, you know, I just I just don't want people to think that it applies to every firm. So I just want to share a little bit about, you know, the type of projects that I'm talking about when I talk about project management. When we talk about architecture firm sizes across the U.S., I mean, like if we look at a comparison, I wanted to do a little, you know, research myself to see if there's a trend and between 2012 and 2017, we can see that firm sizes of under 10 people has gone down slightly from 81 percent to 76 percent. Uh, the you know, amount of staff that they are employing it has also gone down a little bit from 21 to 19 percent. If we kind of skip the middle one and we look at 50 or more you know, number of employees, the number has gone up. You might not think that 3 to 6% is a big jump, but for companies that have 50 or more people, that is a very large population. And you can see that population jump even more clear on this side, 37 to 51%. So the reason why I think that um, you know, we're trending in this direction where big firms are just getting bigger is just because of the complexity of the projects that we work on these days. So if you look at 2020, the tallest buildings in 2020 buildings are just getting taller and taller every year and you know in order to make sure that they stand up make sure they're all functioning properly make sure that they have enough funding for it i mean it just requires a huge team of people to make that happen and also you can see from this 20 projects you know i kind of categorized them to show like you know how many of them are from the same firms and You know, maybe it's not a good thing, but it just shows that like there's really a handful of firms that are able to pull it together and to be able to create super complex projects. And of course, I mean, this is a very small handful. There's definitely, you know, hundreds of firms that are a large size that can do this. In terms of my background and where I'm coming from, you know, I joined KPF when I first came out of school. This is my first project in China, in Pudong, Shanghai. And, you know, as a junior architect who hardly even knew CAD at the time, you know, I um, worked on this uh, 323,000 square meter project, which is around 3.5 million square feet. I started with uh, schematic design, worked with my design team to draw every single panel on this building and then later to to help develop the retail as well. Also going through uh, this uh, CD phase and the CA phase in China. So that's, Kind of the start of you know my career as kind of working on large China projects, and then in terms of other scales, uh, also for KPF, this is a Meishi Lake, which is a master plan project at the time, two thousand nine, and uh, you know we drew pictures. We thought that uh, this looked good. We thought that this lake was a nice shape. We thought that okay, we can divide things up into different communities. It sounded like a fairy tale. It sounded like oh, you know, a cultural end center here. And then, you know, this is what 2009 looked like on this piece of land, which is basically all farmland. And, uh, you know, if you look in Google today in 2021, voila, there it is. It is built. So all of this doesn't just come by magic. This is just shows, you know, the amount of man hours that is spent in order to make this reality. So this is just sheer size, right? Sheer size also means labor. It means people services in order to make it happen. And then another project I want to share, it's very dear to my heart, is Kafka. <laughs> it is in Beijing that I worked on in SLM. And this one, I was also uh, able to participate from SD all the way through uh, CA. But this one, I participated purely as a project manager and not as a designer anymore. So the roles have shifted. But what I want to show on this one is it may not be a very large project. I mean, still in U.S., it's considered a large project. It's about 80,000 square meters but or 800,000 square feet. But I wanted to draw people's attention to the level of detail that architects, you know, want to have control over. And every single thing that you see here are both visually, you know, determined, you know, every single line, every joint has been thought about many times by our design teams and, uh, you know, conceptualized. And also technically, you know, all the pieces of glass, you know, how would you perform? You know, what is the... Uh, shading coefficient, you know, all the pieces of stone, how thick should they be so that they don't crack? And, you know, all of these things are, every single item is a specialty. You know, we have curtain wall contractors that put this together. Inside, we actually hold a Guinness World Record for the tallest water feature in the world. (laughs) And that's done by Wet Design Group, which is in LA who did like the Bellagio fountains, you know, so all of these things, and here's a closer up of it, so, once again, even if it's not a big project, they're so detail oriented and so tailor-made that you can also imagine the amount of people that it takes to get this together. In a very simplified way, if you look at, you know, the built world, we have the owner, the architect, the contractor. The owner holds the contract for the architect and the contractor and says, "Here, you guys figure out how to, you know, make this into fruition." Of course, you know, with these large-scale projects, it's not that simple. And, you know, under each one and maybe even outside, you know, branching out even further are huge teams that are contractually, it could be super complicated. This is just an example. You know, this is not a definitive, it has to be this way. But let's just say that you have a project that has, you know, like the first project in Pudong, where you have an office building, hotel building, retail, you will have an office leasing team and a retail leasing team and a hotel management who they're going to interview and say, hey, is this going to be... Hilton or is it going to be Oberoi? You know, who knows? There's a design manager on the owner's team. There's a project manager who deals with all of their finances and, you know, how much investment they're going to put into the project. So, you know, these are just the owner teams, you know, very purely ownership, but then they also hold contracts, you know, with us and maybe with specialty contractors and then also with a base building contractor. And even for base building contractors, sometimes the projects are so big that they have to split it out just like the Meishi Lake one so that things can be done at the same time because one contractor cannot possibly have the manpower to create you know, such a huge project in the amount of time that they want it to be created. And then specialty contractors just depends on you know, the character of the project. You know, If it's a tall building, you're going to need a building maintenance unit in order to clean the windows. You're going to need specialty lighting designers if you have a theater if it's super tall or a very long building you know what type of elevators are you going to use of course landscape curtain wall these are all considered you know separate designers outside of just architects yes architects can do interiors but there are specialty hotel <laughs> interior designers and specialty retail designers who may all be living under the same roof of this project and on the architect side you know let's just say that these are under your control under your contract you have also a whole ton of consultants who's going to work with you. And maybe these consultants are not even under the architect. So, you know, this last slide is like you as the PM for me, as a PM on the architect side, you know, and similarly, PMs for any of these other companies, we are the ones liaisoning between each other to figure out, you know, when and what we're supposed to do in order to have the project move smoothly and how to get everybody on board in order for, the project to be successful so that, you know, we don't drag the schedule. So basically, I think I'm going to end right here with my slides. And this is kind of, we're going to dive into what project management is all about in this type of project typology.
1: Thank you so much for that. That's, uh, that was fascinating to see those projects and the scale. And I think that the, there's a theme there, uh, kind of sub-theme about how, how the demand on architecture right now is, in some cases, to build larger at least in the kind of works that you're describing, right? Build larger, but also faster in these kind of competing requirements. And I think similarly at WeWork, it wasn't necessarily about building bigger, but definitely about building faster was a yes. kind of key requirement to it. And because the exercise of scale, just like like how many can you open on a certain year was very real around the kind of 2019 period. <laughs>
0: yes, I didn't, I could have done a slide for the WeWork, you know, project management arrows, and that would be a different monster
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> different creature but similarly same number of errors.
1: <laughs> yeah so I, i'm curious like from those experiences what have you kind of developed your own framework or way of thinking about like project management like do you like what are some of the like the must-haves at the very beginning of a project or like how do you ensure that it can be successful from what you've seen like where i'd be curious to know just like from your experience like where where are typically the biggest moments of errors or um, miscommunication? And, and how have you been thinking about that for like new projects that you take on?
0: Well, I think that project management, um, you know, as architects, you know, in the world of architecture, I think that project managers almost 100% of the time <laughs> come from being a designer and come from being an architect. So, you know, we have the hard skills, you know, to know what design should be. And, you know, hopefully we have enough experience to know the components for everything. So I think that a project manager, number one, needs to be well-rounded. You know, it's like well-rounded as a professional to know not just your own scope, but, you know, all of the adjoining scopes and to know like how to pull it all together. So that's just like hard skills of, you know, how put, how a project comes to fruition. But I think another super important part that is different from, you know, why somebody goes from a designer to a project manager is kind of the soft skills. You need to know how to communicate with people. Communication basically is that, you know, super important aspect of being a project manager. You might not have all the answers, but you need to be able to get the answers. You need to know where to find the answers. And part of that is you know, how do you structure the team from the very beginning? How do you set expectations from the very beginning? These are all part of the communication.
2: Flora, how do you think about the delegation of responsibility as a manager across all these, especially not only inside your team, but across external teams mm-hmm. where you know, there's this dimension of wanting to delegate ownership in a sense. If you hold too much of the ownership, the scope of responsibility may, maybe diminishes across your working partners. So how do you think about this art of delegation and trying to hand off scope while also keeping portions of the scope yourself.
0: Yeah, I think so. That's also uh, that soft skill part, right? It's like, it's to understand when you've crossed the line and when you haven't done enough. (laughs) And that's why you have to be more holistic in looking at the big picture. And I think that I'm going to answer this in two parts. One of it is that if you are in a large firm, with huge projects, which, you know, and where your teams are very large, where you have just like that slide that I showed, where you have many, many different teams, then your role as a project manager is more of a pure, a pure PM role, which means that, you know, you don't really put your hand too much into design. You let the designers do what they need to do. You're there to facilitate everybody. You're there not to give technical advice. You're there to bring people to the table when they're needed. And also know when not to bring people to the table when, you know, you don't want them to to be there. And because these teams are so large, you can't possibly have a all hands on deck meeting, like what you're going to have 300 people all talk at the same time. It's not possible. So you need to like put people who are really, it's almost like a bubble diagram, like figure out who is next to who and then connect that and then connect that bubble to the one next to that. So you kind of string everything together. And then once something is kind of Settle, has set in concrete a little bit more, then you can bring everybody to kind of give some final inputs. So as a project manager for a large firm, I feel like, you know, you need to be not a designer, hands off, let them do their thing, but you need to have your eye on everything so that if you see that something is falling through or falling behind, you're going to have to be that bad cop to be like, hey, what's going on with this item? Or like, I see a discrepancy here. Did does somebody not look at this? You know, so your role as a project manager really is kind of like an usher and a maybe a you're the conductor of an orchestra, <laughs> you're not there playing the instruments, right? But then if um you're in a smaller firm, that does get a little bit trickier, or even if you're not in a small firm, you're in a firm, a mid-sized firm where those lines are not so clearly delineated, then that's really a person-to-person, team-to-team discrepancy. Even within the same company, you might work with different teams that does things differently. Maybe you know, your project lead has a close relationship with the client. So let that person be the liaison, you know, make sure that you're copied, you know, make sure information is still being disseminated and communicated. Make sure, you know, these people are CC'd, but you don't have to be the one like, Hey, you know, I'm the PM. I have to be in charge of every single, you know, client interaction. Like, you know, you have to just kind of let things be a little bit more organic. And also design wise, I think that as a PM, Sometimes, many times, middle, uh, mid-sized firms would have a blur between a PM versus a PA role, right? So then as a PM, you might have to do more design, take on more design decisions if there isn't somebody else there. If you don't have a team of, you know, 15 people, you have a team of two and the the only other person is a junior designer or even a, you know, a five, eight-year designer, you might need to bounce your ideas off of each other and just come to a decision together.
2: What's your interface into all this work? What tools are you looking at all these different parties coming together, the current Mm -hmm. version of the, you know, the architecture of decisions? What's the current state of all the decisions? Who's responsible for the decisions? How do you, how much of that is like kept in your head? Where does that live? What does it look like? What kind of tools are you using to, to look at all that and work on it?
0: I think uh, three years ago, it'd be like very simple. You just need the Microsoft suite. <laughs> you just need, you know, your Word documents to create your contracts. You need your projects to create your Gantt charts, right? You need your email, of course, and then your phone. That's it. But now, especially going through WeWork, and George knows it's like so many platforms, so many apps. And people like what they like. And then for me working in China, that's like another world of apps because China and US don't jive when it comes to platforms. They want to, you know, they have enough population to make their own money. Why should they use Google or, you know, anything else that we use? So there's almost like a a second duplicate set of systems that I work in for China projects sometimes. And and if the client insists on using that platform, you can't say no, right? If they call you on WeChat, what are you going to do? like turn off the phone and be like call me on my phone <laughs> and and use international call rates like you're not going to do that. So I think that communication wise it really has expanded and I think that you know project managers like number one you know skill is being organized and now you have to be even more organized because things are just everywhere. So but I still do like you know the old fashioned way where like things don't just live on Google Drive because I don't really understand when things are copied or deleted over or whatever I still like things called revision one in your folder in your computer or server somewhere there are certain things that actually the old school way is more simple and more straightforward that I still keep using Does that answer your question
2: yeah how about other charts or kind of trying to imagine is it that you're you're looking at sets a lot are you looking at what the current version of the project is a lot or is it actually mostly communication that you're seeing?
0: For me, because I'm more on a pure project management track, I think that like, you know, visually, I think I personally don't really like Microsoft projects. It's visually very hard to read. We work at Smartsheets, which I loved, even though it wasn't like visually so compelling, but it was very clear. And, you know, you could change colors, you can change. It kind of does things, automated interface is much easier for us to manipulate. So I did like that. So we work with, and I also liked, there was one where, you could create your org charts, organization charts, right? That is actually something that I use a lot for large scale projects, because even for myself, you know, just having a roster or of contact list of 150 names with 10 different consultants, like I forget who's who. So it helps me so much to get on LinkedIn, grab their photos, stick it on there with all their contact details, and then give a whole org chart to show, okay, this person's, you know, in this group or that team. And so yeah, I do, I think that graphically for project management, we probably need to step it up a notch, but I feel like I haven't seen something that is free, number one, right? Because all of these are separate apps. I've asked, you know, hey, can I get It's Like, well, can you just use projects? Like, yes, I think it's projects. And then I end up going to InDesign to create a schedule, you know, like how tedious is that, right? So I do hope that there's gonna be some better project management tools for things like charts. That brings up a very good
1: point. I'm fascinated that you bring up org charts because I think it ties really well, I think, in terms of the influence that you're trying to have on a project. I mean, you have, maybe put it another way, your question for you would be like, how much authority do you feel you have on these projects? Do you feel like you have a lot of authority to tell people? I mean, obviously, contractually, you might have some definitely responsibility, but I, it's like it seems like so much of your role is ultimately influence, which is where the org chart makes a lot of sense because you're trying to find out like, who really has, depending on the organization you're looking at, who really has authority within there to be able to get to the answer that you need, right? Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: sure, sure. I mean, like, I think in the U.S., it's a little bit easier because people are a little bit more transparent. And I think you can find information online to figure out what their hierarchies are within the company. But like with China projects, oh, my goodness, it's really, really opaque. And even if you ask a question straight, sometimes you just dodge the question, right? So. I really did start wanting to do org charts just to put my own head together to make sure that like, I know who to ask first before I ask the next person. And these things are very sensitive in different cultures. I feel like in the States, it's a lot more horizontal. But when you work in other countries where hierarchy is a big thing, I mean, you're not calling the big boss for everything. You can't just call up the CEO or the chairman for every question. It has to go through three different layers. So you need to navigate that. So definitely that helps me visualize who to go to. Because as a communicator, it's not just about the content that you're communicating. It's about who you're communicating to.
1: How do you pick that up along the way? Is that something that you have internal conversations in the project teams you've been a part of beforehand to kind of assess like, okay, here's the lay of the land. Here are all the stakeholders. You know, really should be attuned to like, you know, we can talk to this person this way. We should talk to this person. It's likely that you're not the only interface sometimes with some of these teams. It seems like that that's also useful across your entire Totally,
0: company. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, when I first got onboarded at Big recently, and this is like it back in, in January during COVID, you know, I t- there's nobody in the office. So who do you talk to? How do you know, like, the personalities? And, you know, the director, the managing director was kind enough to, you know, mm-hmm. chat with me like every day. Just like, okay, here's the project you're working on. This person is going to be responsible for this, this, and that. They prefer to work during these hours and they prefer this. I mean, that is so helpful to give some color to a personality because you're the person who needs to get answers from that person or need to work with that person, right? So definitely, it is something that you have to learn along the way. It is. And I think that architects in general probably shouldn't be moving around and skipping around different firms as much as tech companies. I mean, I just feel like, you know, our jobs are, are so service-based. It's not a product. You ju- you don't just create a product and walk away. And even if you do create that product, which is that building, it takes 10 years for something to be complete. So, I mean, it does take time. You can't rush it, but yes, I, you know, I feel like whenever I'm handed a new project, you know, maybe people might think that, oh, you know, why is she asking so many questions? Why is she so nosy about these details? Like, but it helps you to do your job better. Right. So like, when there's always gonna be a kickoff or an onboarding meeting with the people who have been most involved with the longest history, know where the folders are, where know where the files are. And you know, so definitely very important to onboard fully. But as should say, you can't rush it, right? Because sometimes you'll just know. Like once you encounter that person, don't be afraid to talk to that person. If you get slapped back, then like, okay, I guess I shouldn't talk to them next time. <laughs> you know, just don't make any big mistakes.
2: Because Flora, because a lot of your it sounds like a lot of your work is happening like in text keeping track of like as an architect the decisions show up in the drawings and the current version of the drawing represents the synthesis of those decisions but when you don't really have the drawing as your only interface to all these stakeholders how do you keep some of these questions perhaps in play or like waiting when you can't even just like the moment you think about it go ask them and find the answer you have you have to be strategic about what question, how to formulate it, when to ask and who to ask to. So how do you keep track of all these like kind of floating questions that you want to make sure that get answered, but you need to pose them strategically?
0: That's a funny question. I'm thinking back in the SOM days where I hope these people don't mind me mentioning names, but <laughs> but uh, there's this really, um, some I really respect, Alex, and uh, he's a technical architect and he's the one needing to figure things out, right? Like once the designers are done with the drawings, like, okay, now does it coordinate with the MEP system? Is it clashing into our structural? And that really is a picture worth a thousand words. Like how are you going to write that, right? So I work with him very often where he'll tell me what the, and, and every question is not a straight answer. It's always, if this, then that, if, if A, then B, if B, then C. So definitely I work with them to structure and formulate that one question to a technical consultant. And then have a meeting about it even, you know, or, you know, have a ASK attached to it so that people know what you're talking about. And so for all of these things, sometimes we try and I can't say that I've ever seen it been done super like, you know, tight, watertight way. But like we try in the beginning of the project to set up a list, an Excel chart, right? Right of all the outstanding questions and the dates that we ask the question, when do we resolve it and try to close it out? And actually, I think that there's also that thing where the closeout docs, it's always a pain in the ass. And it's like, you know, you're trying to to tick off all of those checklist items. But, you know, I feel like if you have all these um, predetermined questions, it doesn't really work. But um, anyway, at SOM, it does work to an extent, but I think it only works for one drawing set. I don't think it can work for the life of the project. Because then your Excel sheet just becomes like scrolling, scrolling, scrolling long, right? So I feel like for these type of things, I think you target, there's always going to be a period of time in the project where you need to do more coordination than not. So just target that period. During SD, 50%, this is the chart. And then, you know, let that chart go. Maybe copy over the questions that's still outstanding after you've submitted 50%. Then you start a new chart. Okay, here are the goals or the questions that has now emerged during 50 to 100%. So I think if you were to put it into chunks, especially for large projects, keep a running track of it by having separate files so that it's still manageable, but you still keep the history of everything. And also for now, now it is easier to review drawings, though, I feel for project managers. There's like the blue beam sessions, right? Like that's really easy. So there are definitely tools there now to help us, you know, look more into drawings. But at the end of the day, you know, you do need text to go with that. Otherwise, very often somebody will draw, do a screenshot, draw some red lines with an arrow and they think, oh yeah, I'm sure you know what what I'm talking about. No. (laughs) And even if we do know what you're talking about, I need it in writing. Yes or no. Because if there's any litigation down the line, I need to be able to pull out that email.
2: (laughs) What are the moments as you've developed as a project manager where you've kind of tried to learn faster, faster than you might have if you're just picking things up along the way? Yeah, I was sort of curious about like how you've learned it yourself, like accelerated your learning path, tried to learn it faster on purpose, Uh more thoughtfully and sought out other sources of information beyond just like showing up to work and, and doing it and whatever you learn, you learn.
0: I don't think that I can say like on a daily basis, I'm saying to myself, okay, what can I do to learn faster? But I think it's more like, I think I've chosen a path of a career path that kind of forces me to be put into a situation that I am not comfortable with. And I think that you take the opportunity and you don't shy away from it. And if you have an end goal and you know that you want to become, that you want to do a certain type of work, you need to kind of like prepare yourself for that. So what I mean by that is, for example, when I joined KPF, at that point, you're a blank page. So you just absorb whatever. And then through being a designer, I realized, why am I drawing this five different times or five different iterations of it? And after six months, they decide on the first one. You know, like, why do we have to go through all four different studies when they could have saved time and money just to pick the one that we did from the beginning? And I didn't know why, because I wasn't at the table when these discussions were being had. And you realize that these twists and turns are the only way for you to go forward. You have to do something. Over and over again, in order for a decision to be made, and sometimes people are just not ready to make a certain decision until they see all the options, right? So that's you know that was my incentive for wanting to be in front of the client, wanting to be in the meetings when these things happen, because I want to know why. <laughs> you know, it frustrated me to not know why, and so when the chance arose for me to go to China and to be there on site, you know, instead of being in New York working on a project in China, I was like. Yeah, I'll move. I'll go there. So I actually worked in China for four years. <laughs> you know, so um, that's a, a large part of you know who I am. I feel, and that's one jump. You know, to be okay. I'm not a very outspoken person growing up, but then I've kind of had to put myself in those awkward situations to train myself to not be nervous anymore and to make those decisions. So same thing with you know I continued down you know uh, architecture path, and then when I was put into China, it was like, oh, can you open a new satellite office? I was 25, and I was like, "Are you going to be there to help me? You're going to, you know, be the one making decisions? Sure, I'll go and do and execute, <laughs> as long as you know you can <laughs> be the person to direct and help me. Then, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. And then the, my last, you know, jump at WeWork was also a very intentional, you know, decision because I felt like I could have stayed, you know, at SM, and you know, they it's a great team, but I chose to change because I felt like I wanted to know more. So, if as long as there's curiosity. And you, know, you make that decision, even if it's a hard decision or a sad decision, whatever it is, but you know that it's going to help you propel yourself forward because just because you want to learn more doesn't mean that you're going to be given the chance to learn more. So you have to give yourself that chance to learn more.
2: What did you see was like the project management culture between these different offices like SOM, uh, WeWork, or BIG? Do you think that they're different? Is it like a different methodology or your other peer project managers? Or is Definitely. it kind of more it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, but I think that just, I don't think that's just for project management, I just think that's like the culture in general, right? Like for example, and let's not pick on anybody specifically, but like, you know, the traditional firms who have a long-standing structure, you just go with that structure. You can't go there to shake things up and you need to be content with living in that structure. So at SOM, it was very predetermined what your tasks are, what your role is. And you learn a lot through that too. I think you, you know, really gain that type of experience of being super organized and, you know, you know exactly how, and you have somebody to ask if you don't know. There's a hugely, you know, very rich group of people with information of how things should be done. And then you go to WeWork and it's like, nobody knows anything. And then, but we hired you is because you can do it, right? It's like, yeah. Okay. I think so. I mean, I thought that I could and, you know, <laughs> but I also think that maybe some, you know, not everybody did, but then we all worked together and we made it work. And I think we made it work by being open. So I think that like in us, because it's like everything is structured, you know, who to go to the hierarchy is very clear. So, you know, when things are opaque and when things are transparent, but then in WeWork, everything is transparent. And only that transparency is helping for people who may not be as experienced to be able to pull things off, right? And then at Big, I feel like, you know, it's really a balance of the two. And, you know, I'm not afraid to say this now, but like, you know, I feel like because I I was thinking about going into development or something after WeWork, right? Because WeWork essentially kind of its own client. But then I decided to go back to big because I felt like, oh, you know, now it seems like they have a, very, a younger team, you know, um, but doing very interesting work, still architecture and, you know, a lot of built projects, very right? interesting projects. So there it is, you know, once I joined, it has proven to be true that like culturally they know what they're doing. They have more room to grow. They have, they give more, um, you know, flexibility, you know, to kind of do what you need to do and give you a little bit more space to, you know, kind of do it your own way. So yes, I mean, between these three firms, actually, I think, and I would lump, you know, KPF, my previous, into the SOM where like they already have their system going you know and none of these things are good or bad it's just the nature of where they are at the moment right because in 30 years maybe big will become way more structured
1: so so many questions running through my head right now one of which is if you were to be hiring somebody today let's say you were running a firm right now what would be the qualities that you would look for considering your now experiencing and now in your own context now for your role? What makes for a really great project manager, and I think that might be a good, useful for those listening as a as maybe a benchmark to consider. Is like, is it right for them too? Because preface here, I, I don't think that everyone can be a pro, an effective project manager based on their own personal interest either, right? I think there's something about that too. But yeah, love to know more like
0: how Shorter. you how would you think about that. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, when we first started the conversation and we we're talking about, you know, what are the skills and then I mentioned soft skills, right? So I think that at the end of the day, anybody can learn a an nap. Anybody can learn how to, you know, draw something and use something that's a hard skill. So, you know, for me, the hard part is the people skills and not necessarily the hard skills. So I think that, you know, for somebody who I would ever, you know, hire into a similar role, I would look for somebody who, is compassionate, actually, you know, because you need to be on everybody's side. You are not the decision maker. You are the person in the middle. So you need to be able to be level-headed enough to encounter all different personalities, somebody who, you know, can relate to everybody else, but also somebody who can be strong when needed. Like if you need to put your foot down, you're going to put your foot down, (laughs) you know? So I think personality is a very big thing. And, you know. Is to be agile and that's and this is maybe something a little bit more new I feel like you know previously before our generation I feel like you know project manager maybe did have more control but I think because everything all fields are becoming more transparent you need to become more agile to different peoples and just be open be transparent you know you don't want to be somebody who's hoarding information that's the worst thing because then everything ends at you <laughs> you know you're supposed to be the one sending everything out and not the person just holding that in.
2: there's some other beginner mistakes or, you know, moments for say we have a question from the audience who is wondering about how to train team members to sort of graduate them and move them from a designer role during this like hybrid period where they're sort of PM PAs, project manager, project architect. What are some beginner mistakes to look for and how to sort of correct for them sooner than later?
0: I think pep talks are very good. <laughs> I think that uh, and also like lead by example is huge. I've always been that way. I feel like I owe a lot to my mentors. And also, I think you need to make a very clear distinction between internal and external. And what I mean by that is, you know, the project team, the conversations that you have with your internal team and your internal goals may not align with any of the external, whether it's client or consulting goals. So, you need to know what information to share and what information not to share and w- at what angle you're going to play that card. <laughs> so I almost feel like, you know, you are you are playing a game of cards sometimes with the external because you're trying to see like, you know, you want, what are you going to trade me for? You know, if I give you this, are you going to give me more money to do that? <laughs> you know, and I don't mean like money in terms of our fee. I just mean for the design, right? If, I, if you VE this out, what can I add back in to add back the value in design, right? And I think maybe understanding it's not easy. I don't think that you can fast track it too much, to be honest, Chris, because I feel like because it's a human job, it's a communication job. You know, I think the best way is to actually take it slow. The best way is to be able to experience as many different interactions as you can. I think that whoever that's leading that person or trying to mentor that person, give that person as many opportunities as possible to make mistakes, to to say something, and if they do say something wrong, you can say like, "Okay, if you're not, you know, saying the right thing, I'm just gonna pat you or something, or I'll, you know, make a motion." Like internally, you gotta be on the same front, right? A united front in order to present uh, externally.
2: Would it make more sense then for there to be more of a formulation of a role, which is like an assistant project manager earlier, before you're actually a manager, but you're still in the seat, or you're actually sitting next to the project manager in action?
0: I think so. I think definitely. And I think that's how I was trained, to be honest. I feel like, you know, I was guided through being CC'd on everything, you know. And then once you see it, you know, you're given a chance to be like, well, what do you think? You know, or I can propose something and then see if my manager agrees. And then if we are on the same page, then we go move forward. If I have a flaw in my thinking, then he or she will direct that and then we'll go in the right direction. So through a couple of those, you know, interactions, then you can know what each other expects. But also this is very personal. It's not like there's never one right way, right? Because you work for a company and the company's goals are different between different firms. Some firms are more profit orientated. Some firms are more design oriented and they don't care if they lose some profit, you know? So you need to kind of base that on your leadership team and what their priorities are.
1: We do have some questions that I think we can kind of transition over to in the Q&A. So first question is, so obviously past year has been crazy. How has the pandemic kind of impacted your work in general? Like now that, you know, it's very people oriented, but we obviously have Zoom. Just curious, like, how has it made any kind of impact to the work that you're doing? Well, I
0: think that probably everybody can relate, right? I mean, we're on Zoom right now. and I think that initially people think, oh, virtual, you can't get personal. But I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, the expectation of how formal a Zoom call is these days have now changed. So you could have frank conversations just on Zoom. And I think that, but the personal part, yes, I think that for China projects or projects in other countries, sometimes you still, with the clients especially, you do need to establish that relationship. And I don't mean like, oh, you know, just go out and you know, have dinners together. I mean, like you need to have a working relationship, shoulder to shoulder, draw, (laughs) you know, coordinate and, you know, show that you are very intense about your work. But I think that uh, actually, you know, in many ways, Zoom has helped us to become faster at what we do, you know, and just being able to do things remotely. I feel like we can do things actually on a more round o'clock basis. And I think that's, that has always been true for me because I've always worked in China projects. So it's literally 12 hours difference. Right. So I'm used to doing the emails at night and checking things in, you know, early, whichever time of the day, right. And the Sunday nights I have to check because that's their Monday mornings. So, but I think that even for people in the States, some people are like, oh, it's kind of infringing upon my personal time. Yeah, but you need to manage that, right? Like you, If you think that it's not a good time for you, then don't look at it <laughs> or don't respond. So I do think that, um, I hope that we don't have to do the quarantine anymore so that we could fly when we want to. But I also think that we could take advantage of not having to fly everywhere, not having to take the subway to meet your, every single consultant. It wastes energy. It doesn't really, it's not required and we can be equally effective through markups and Zoom. You know, you can do everything even for imagery on virtual platforms these days. And it probably has pushed, you know, the virtual platforms forward faster, (laughs) again, because of the context and not because they want it to, but you're forced to uh, create platforms that are better for the users.
2: We have a question from the audience. What are your tips to manage different personalities within your project team and to keep the team on task?
0: Yeah, so that's another, like, you know, very... Gray question, which is a gray topic, right? The whole soft skill part is the part that I think is hard to learn. <laughs> but I think not that it cannot be, but I think it will take more time to get into the habit or to understand all the intricacies of people's personalities. You know how to talk to people, what gets them excited. You know how to not push them too hard, uh, or how to push them. You know more. So I really do look at every team member on a one on one basis. And I definitely tend to think that having one-on-one conversations about any issue in particular, whether it's like just solving a design problem or I don't know, like schedule whatever it is, like, you know, you do need to just talk to people and create those very close relationships to each individual member. You know, you shouldn't, you should you shouldn't be like only, you should not have a meeting with 10 people all the time because there will be some of those people in that team that is not gonna speak out because they're always surrounded by other people. So you need to know that you can't expect everybody to be like you. You can't expect everybody to be somebody that you know, is being transparent or being very impactful to, like, like everybody needs to be that same way. You need to recognize when somebody is trying to speak, but have not been able to, right?
1: That's great. We also have, uh, we have a couple more questions here. So for offices that train people, to serve multiple roles at once? So they're designer, project architect, project manager. Do you think that that's a beneficial approach or should people really be more focused on individual roles in the way it's framed here with necessary insight into other roles? So yeah, it's kind of basically almost like a, do you think, and this might be applicable more in smaller firms, the kind of more generalist approach versus more specific and how might you structure that? Let's say if you're even starting a firm or had like a, a small firm yourself,
0: I would say that generalist is still better. I think architects in gen- is a generalist, right? Like we are the ones carrying all of the other consultant contracts because we are not specialists in those subjects, right? And we're not structural engineers, and yet we have to learn structures in school, and we have to know that a certain geometry is just not going to work. We are not MEP engineers, but if you don't, if you think that a nine foot ceiling is just a nine foot floor to floor then you really don't know what you're doing, right? So. I think that I, would, if it's a small firm, I think that a generalist approach is probably better because then you can spread your own responsibilities. If you're the owner, you can spread your own responsibilities a little bit more to the people who have stayed with you more and you can reward. And I think that they will find it more rewarding to work on you know, more projects and more roles. I mean, sometimes you need a little bit of a downtime and just like crank out a drawing. And other times you need some brain power to think about how you're going to structure a team or how to approach a, proposal or something like that. So I think for smaller firms, definitely that, but I think for larger firms, it depends on the staff too, right? Like there's certain staff that there's certain designers who like to do the conceptual design and be in la la land and do things that are so futuristic, but will not happen at least not in the next 20 years. Right. But that's fun. And they like to use that creative juices to create imagery, you know, but then there are other people who want to pin it down. They want to see it built. They want to take photographs of the built thing. So that's also kind of dependent on, I've never been an employer, but I would think <laughs> that, you know, if you know what it is that your staff wants is how you're going to get retention. So just, you know, it shouldn't be a, everybody gets the same treatment thing. It should be kind of, and if you're smaller firm, I think you have enough time and energy to think about that. But for a larger firm, also, you know, I think it works better probably if people are specialized, but you shouldn't close the doors to people who want to jump to another team, right? There are people who've been working for a couple of years on concept and they want to know more about technical, but you keep on making them do renderings because they do beautiful renderings. <laughs> so open that door and give them that chance to move over. Because if you don't, then they'll just go to another firm. I mean, like, there's no benefit to you not allowing that to happen.
2: Do you have any advice on how to preempt or pre prepare for the PM role if it's like several years away, but it's something that you want to be on track for? Did you find any, have you found any management writing helpful or like MBA style thinking about how to run these complex projects?
0: I think especially for architecture firms, I think that you it, there's no fast way. You can't do a shortcut. If you're going to do a shortcut, then you don't get the respect because you don't know what you're saying or you haven't gone through it. And people, you know, it's like, I don't know how you would learn without going through the steps yourself for an architecture. I'm not talking about any other fields, but like you have to have, you know, done the all-nighters with your team to know, <laughs> you know, what kind of passion they have to get this right or, you know, why, you know, they take that much time to do something. But if you want to, Kind of go towards that goal. The best way is to have experienced each stage of that design. So if you find yourself stuck, you know, doing one thing, ask for some other task to be done for the next project. You know, so I think that to be well rounded, you need to kind of do as many different things as possible. You'll never be able to do everything. You'll and PMs don't know everything at all. Like we, every project is so different that you just have to figure it out with the experts that you have, right? But you have to have enough experience and enough variety to know what is out
1: there. Yeah. I think there's something also about the humility of being able to be upfront about what you don't know too, right? That a big key to project management is also being able to tell people like, Oh, I don't know that, but I will find the answer for you. Exactly. And respond. And things don't have to be like, it's not like an immediate response sometimes for some, you know, you can wait 24 hours to get an answer for something, but that is a very good, uh, I have found to be a very critical thing when working on different types of projects as well.
0: And also a time management, I didn't mention is hugely important. Just like you say, you have, I think, you know, you don't have to know everything, but you have to know what's priority. And then, you know, there may be a task that's really tedious and, but you need to do it right now. But then there may be other easier tasks that can wait you want to do it because you're familiar and you can get that answer quickly. But if that can wait, then just let it wait.
1: I, uh, I think that that framework of prioritization is very critical. So we have a question from a friend of Monograph, Marjan Pearson. Uh, how do you, Flora, measure your success, uh, your own success? How do you create alignment in those metrics with the companies you work with? Um, have there been, and I think you kind of j- talked a little bit about this in terms of the differences of companies, but I'm very curious, like, how do you measure your own success on a project?
0: I think to put it simply, if everybody is happy, then I did a good job. <laughs> like, If the designers are happy and, you know, they can see me as a friend and they can come to me for any questions, you know, work or non-work related, if a consultant calls me up once in a while just to chat, or if the client is happy to Mm respond to my emails all the time, then I feel like I'm on a good track. (laughs) Of course, you know, financially, you also want to make sure that you're on the right track. But then if you're not, then I'm sure that your partners or your, you know, management team will tell you that, hey, I'm not happy with the profit or the lack of profitability that we have here. So, I mean, I think it's always a balancing act. I think that, you know, project managers, we really are like just making sure everything is afloat, right? So if you can keep all everything kind of up in the air and, you know, kind of rolling along smoothly, then you've done your job. There are hard measurements sometimes, but that's depending on the firm, as I said. Like there are certain firms that, you know, put profitability as a very high priority. And then there are other ones who don't, who, you know, would be more willing to lose money and still want to do that project just because they want to do it because it's more interesting and they have fun with it. So it just depends on which type of firm who you're working for.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it was like about, it's like you're building social capital with each of these projects and you can leverage that social capital at some point or another project if you're working with the same consultant where you need to like push on them for something. Mm -hmm. But you build up that goodwill that you can spend a little bit of that to be able to say, hey, I I need to lean on you on something for this as an emergency. And I think that's also, that that ties into a soft skill capacity. It's like, it's not short-term. These are long-term games that you're playing in a sense of like being able to work with people over your career, not just like Mm -hmm. a very specific project. So we we are almost at time and there's a lot of great questions here, which maybe there's a lot of them having to do with like micromanagement. Don't micromanage. Yeah, That's it. <laughs> Period. Done. Answered. Yeah, don't micromanage. That's 100%. Like if you're a micromanager, then you aren't actually a pretty good manager to begin with because a lot of management is delegation. If, if anything, management is delegation. Yes. That is role of it. Okay, so um, one quick question we'll kind of end it up with and we'll kind of uh, start to wrap things up is one that we like to ask here at the end of every interview is what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? And this can be professional or it can be personal. We've seen all sorts of answers.
0: That's right. That's the question that I (laughs) forgot. (laughs) The nicest thing that someone has ever done for me. I think that, uh, and there's a personal, but at the same time, everybody, most of the people who attended are colleagues or ex-colleagues where, you know, my husband and I got married in India right before COVID. You know, we only wanted to do one Big wedding we didn't want to spend it two times and you know I thought it'll be more fun to be in India and we sent out invitations to a lot of our friends and I was pretty surprised that a lot of them came and it's not a you know small expense so you know it's not a one thing or one person that has done but I think that we've been very humbled that uh, you know so many people thought that it was important enough to travel that far <laughs> for an event and of course you know we also made a trip out of it and uh, hopefully you know I, but I think that's a very you know personal thing. But I think professionally speaking, I definitely had, you know, two very great mentors and, you know, who've always been very honest with me, you know, whether or not I wouldn't call them close friends, but, you know, as a mentor um, and who would guide me to say, like, you know, is this the right path or not? You know, that's that's probably the nicest thing that I've ever had is to have good mentors. And, you know, I hope that everybody can be a mentor to somebody.
1: That's great. Thank you for sharing. Those are awesome. Uh, we want to have you back here. I mean, I just think there's so, so much we can talk about that we didn't get a chance to dive into. I'm so curious about like the the lessons learned from from your time in China too, like the four years there and like what's mm-hmm. applicable here. But And there's a lot of great questions that we have in Q&A. So we'll just have to park this for and just kind of say that we're going to have you back, back on at some point. <laughs> All right. So I'll kind of end here with just a little bit of a, of a prompt about Monograph for those that are curious. At Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations and back office management for architecture firms and design professionals, it includes landscape architects as well, uh, interior design firms, and engineering firms. Monograph is designed by architects for architects. So the founding team and about half of the company right now has had some experience with landscape architecture, architecture, and design in general. And so we're building something that we would like to see into the world, which is you know, a, a pleasure to be a part of. and so. But what is Monograph ultimately? It's a great way to see a unifying vision of your firm in one easy and beautifully designed solution. It helps you understand where you are in any given project. Some of the things that we talked about today are covered through uh, Monograph. and um, What your schedules and budgets are going to look like in real time. So as, as your team is inputting time into their timesheets, you're seeing that reflected back into what we call the money Gantt in Monograph. So you can start your free trial today. It's a 10-day free trial, no credit card required. At monograph.com, which we just launched today. We were monograph.io, so really excited that we have a .com now. Great story for another day on how we got that. Pretty crazy. And uh, Or watch a live demo with uh, with Robert and myself um, every Friday. Um, You can sign up on, on the website as well. We both walked through the product together and he helps answers any questions that you might have regarding how this can fit into your workflow. I think we added a link to the chat there. Flora, this is so fantastic to to talk to you again. We had quite a whirlwind experience building out Salt Lake City. Uh, yes, that was fun. <laughs> that was fun. Yes. And uh, all, everything that you talked about today, I really, I really felt that when you talked about like the sort of the empathy, the kind of the your ability to communicate across teams and with very little information at times. Uh, you know, when we were dealing with very ambiguous project timelines and deliverables, but you were such a steady and open throughout the whole process. You were just like, uh, I think you described it a little bit earlier, but I almost get the sense that what makes a really great project manager at the end of the day is the is the ability to just to like the yes and. It was always like... A, okay, yes, let's go do this, right? No matter the level of ambiguity. And um, that's why I was so excited to have you on here today. And Chris, always a pleasure to have you. Everyone that joined us, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you, we'll see you soon.
2: Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-size architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.